The story goes like this. Before the creation of the universe, there was the infinite, what we call the Ein Sof, the endless. And then, ten vessels containing the divine light emanated out from the Ein Sof, the endless, sparking creation. These ten vessels are called the Sephirot, and they contain the emanations of the will of God and the act of creation. But as the divine light emanated downwards through the Sephirot, the vessels, some of them shattered, scattering God's light in all directions. Some fragments went upwards towards the Ein Sof, but others went down, with sparks of the divine light trapped inside of them. These fallen pieces became containers of evil, of the light exiled from the presence of God, the roots of a flawed and incomplete universe. Trapped, too, is the Shekhinah, the female manifestation of God, the dwelling place of the furthest Sephirot which gave rise to humanity. Redemption is the completeness and perfection of the universe, and it's only possible by the collection of all these scattered bits of light trapped in the broken vessels and put back together. Luckily, God gave us the roadmap for repair of the Sephirot at Mount Sinai. The Torah and careful observance of the commandments will return the divine light. Each time you observe a commandment, perform a mitzvah, you are picking up one piece of scattered light, bringing your soul and the world that much further away from exile and evil, that much closer to redemption. This, then, is the task of each and every Jew, your purpose on earth to collect the fragments of light one by one, and in doing so, return them to the light of divine redemption. This narrative is, more or less, the foundational story of Kabbalah, the mystical doctrine of Judaism that bubbled up from the Jewish experience over several centuries. Although it was credited to ancient times, it first found expression in the 1200s in Spain and fully blossomed in the 1500s in the land of Israel. And though there were several key players, the man who launched it into popular consciousness was Rabbi Isaac Luria, known as Ha'ari, the Lion. A mystic and a scholar who lived only 38 years and left us with just a smidgen of original writing, he became the spiritual authority behind Kabbalah, influencing generations of students. His version of the cosmic story and the coming of the Messianic Age came at a time when Jews were eager for a reinvention. While Jews were facing persecution in nearly every corner of the world, Isaac Luria and Kabbalah found freedom in a small village at the top of a mountain, where the air was clean and the divine light seemed to shine its brightest. The ancient city of Sfat. Today we're going into the realm of the visionary and mysterious. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. In the middle of the 13th century, the 1200s, there appeared in Spain a bizarre and esoteric thousand-page book written in Aramaic. It was called The Book of Radiance, better known as the Zohar. The work was published by Rabbi Moses de Leon. He claimed the book to have been the lost work of one of the great sages of the second century, Shimon ben Yochai, a revered leader of the early rabbinic era. 
For 800 years, Jewish tradition has traced the Zohar's lineage, and thus mystical Judaism itself, to Shimon ben Yochai. Historically, however, it seems pretty clear that Moses de Leon and a few others authored the work. After his death, his wife admitted that he attached ben Yochai's name to the book in order to make sure it sold well. Which it did, though initially only to a small group of people interested in Jewish mysticism in 13th century Spain. The Zohar covers an immense amount of ground. In part, it's a commentary on the Torah, but it's unlike the commentaries of the great scholars like Maimonides, who died a few decades before the Zohar was published. The Zohar mines the Torah for hidden meanings that reveal the great mysteries of the universe. It uncovers the cosmological essences of creation and evil, of God and prayer, of the infinite power of words, and even individual letters placed in a certain order. The Zohar expands on the idea of the ten sefirot, the ten vessels that contain the essence of God and provide a roadmap for human spirituality. Things like wisdom, understanding, mercy, justice, and eternity. It also delves into the mystical connection between humanity and God. The writer and poet Hilal Ratzabi writes that, quote, God is characterized as a lover or a bride called the Shekinah, and the goal of prayer, study, and meditation is depicted as a mystical union with God, in which the mystic loses himself in the divine being. End quote. The mystical philosophy outlined in the Zohar came to be known as Kabbalah, although the term and some of these ideas predate the book. Kabbalah can mean a number of things, but it's usually translated as either reception or tradition, in the sense of being passed down from one generation to the next. In Israel today, when you buy something at the store, you get a little slip of paper acknowledging your purchase, a Kabbalah, or receipt, which linguistically suggests that the mystical redemption of the universe is tied to retail therapy, so don't feel guilty about that trip to Target. Anyway, Kabbalah remained a subject on the fringe of Jewish life, experiencing little bursts of interest now and again, but for around 300 years, mostly hovering in the background. But then in the late 1400s, things got bad for the Jews. And when things get bad, people turn to mysticism for explanation and comfort, and these events added new dimensions to the ideas of Kabbalah. And then all of this coincided with the short but mystically marvelous life of Isaac Luria. But first, we have to understand why Sfat became the spiritual center of Kabbalah and how Isaac Luria ended up there. In the year 1492, as Christopher Columbus guided his three ships out of the harbor to sail across the ocean, he passed by hundreds of other boats carrying Jews out of Spain. Jews had just been officially expelled from Catholic Spain. Five years later, they would be forced out of Portugal too. And hey, Christopher Columbus may have himself been Jewish. Check out episode 63 in season three to find out. Anyway, the Jewish exiles fanned out in all directions. Many went to Muslim lands in North Africa and the Middle East, where they enjoyed a higher degree of toleration and religious freedom. Through a quirk of history, geography, and Muslim conquest, one city in the land of Israel attracted a large number of these exiled Jews. Sfat is a small city on top of a mountain in northern Israel, overlooking green hills and valleys, where going back to ancient times it was, and still is, famous for the sweet taste of its clean air. 
through winding cobblestone alleyways and steep staircases, Sfat first attracted exiled Jewish textile makers, who turned the city into a commercial powerhouse. The town's prosperity brought in more Jews, including scholars, and then especially the mystics. For about a hundred years, the 1500s, Sfat's cramped alleyways were the manufacturing center of an extraordinary period of Jewish scholarship brought in from the expulsion from Spain. In 1565, the rabbi Joseph Caro published the Shulchan Aruch, which became the definitive code on Jewish law still read today. And however the Zohar was brought to Tzfat, it ended up in the hands of the master scholar Rabbi Moses Cordovera. He synthesized the various traditions, ideas, and frameworks around Kabbalah into a single commentary that set forth an established theology from which others could study. So now, if you wanted to study Kabbalah, you came to Svat, where the secret learning was taking place. And that's how Svat ended up as the center of Jewish mysticism, and still is today. But it's Isaac Luria, who came just after Cordovera, who gets the most credit as Kabbalah's founding father, thanks to his scholarship, his students, and the legends that rose about him in the centuries after he lived. He was born in Jerusalem in 1534, but soon moved to Egypt to live with his wealthy uncle, who provided for the best teachers to instruct Isaac Luria in Talmudic scholarship, in which he was gifted. He was on the straight and narrow, as they say, until, sometime around age 22, he discovered the Zohar and chose to devote himself to exploring the mysteries of Kabbalah. Luria got himself a little shack on the shore of the Nile River, and for the next seven years hid away, meditating and studying. He would come home to visit his wife and family only on Shabbat and even then refuse to talk to anyone except with a few Hebrew words. I tried all of that last week, by the way, and it was not well received. Luria left Egypt and returned to Israel in 1570, first to Jerusalem, then to Sfat. He may have been attracted to the mystical city because of the opportunity to study with the great Kabbalist Cordovera. But Cordovera died either just before Luria arrived or shortly after. Bereft of a strong spiritual leader, the community turned to the luminary who just showed up in their midst, Isaac Luria. He gathered around him about 30 students and settled down to expand on the ideas of Kabbalah. The historian Marvin Goodman writes that Luria taught on, quote, how to commune with the souls of the righteous, how to concentrate on the divine names, and how to achieve proper kavanah, intensity in mystical meditation, end quote. His students were enraptured. And then, just about a year later, Isaac Luria died of plague. To spend time with Isaac Luria is to spend time with the transcendent, and that's certainly what his students thought of him. Luria was an oral teacher, writing down almost nothing. It was left to his students to record his teachings. Above all, Luria was said to possess extraordinary powers of perception. Luria's most dedicated student, Chaim Vital, wrote that the great mystic was able to converse in the language of trees and birds, to mine their communications for connections to the holy. Vital wrote that Luria, quote, could discern all that any individual had done and could see what they would do in the future. He could read people's thoughts, often before the thought even entered their mind. 
He knew the future and was aware of everything happening here on earth and what was decreed in heaven, end quote. Simply by looking into the flame of a candle or smelling a scent, he could see into the souls of the righteous. Chaim Vital said, quote, he studied the true mysteries, end quote. Unless anyone later questioned these accounts, Vital wrote, all this we saw with our own eyes. Eli Yasef, professor emeritus of Hebrew literature at Tel Aviv University, makes an important distinction between the legend that grew about Luria, that he performed miracles like a saint, and what his students thought about what was going on. Yasef writes that Luria, quote, does not cause things to happen. He does not intervene in mundane or divine events using supernatural knowledge or powers. Rather, he knows things that exist only in the hidden world, end quote. Chaim Vital insists, too, that Luria did not partake in magic, but that it was his natural piety, purity, holiness, and deep study of Kabbalah that enabled these gifts. How much of what Luria taught about Kabbalah was him, and how much was later additions from Chaim Vital and other students, we can't really say. Vital and others were characters in their own right, and they may have been liberal with their attributions. But what is ascribed to Luria was a kind of reworking of Jewish mysticism. Like other philosophers we've talked about, Luria brought together the various streams of, in this case, Kabbalah, and organized them in a systematic way to produce a single system of thought. And this became known as Lurianic Kabbalah, the most popular strain of Kabbalah. As always, this topic is so wide-ranging that we can't cover, but more than a morsel of it in this episode, the other challenge is that this stuff is very, very high-level esoteric. Kabbalah requires a mountain of studying, even for basic concepts, which is one of the reasons why so few people are able to go deep. Historically, Kabbalah was treated as highly classified information. Isaac Luria even threatened his students not to ever allow his teachings to spread. Kabbalah was very carefully reserved for only the greatest students, and even then only doled out incrementally. Bits and pieces found their way into mainstream Jewish theology, but much of it is really hard to access. Still, doesn't make it any less important. So let's take two examples that Isaac Luria innovated to see what he was up to. One's kind of obscure, and the other much more recognizable to Jews today. As we heard at the beginning of this episode, Kabbalah is particularly concerned with the act of creation. All the great Kabbalists put out ideas relating to how this process came about at the level of the mystical. We're mining the Torah for its deepest mysteries, so we're going way, way beyond the basic God created the world in seven days narrative. So we have the Ein Sof, the endless, the infinite, which in some sense existed before the beginning in which God affected with divine light for the act of creation. But how do you go from the infinite to the finite realm of the universe? Because if something is infinite, there's no additional space for anything else to come in. So Isaac Luria developed the idea of the tzimtzum, which means contraction. Tzimtzum, contraction. The idea is that God contracted itself in order to make the space for the finite to be created within the realm of the infinite. The American writer George Robinson has a good analogy here. 
picture, he says, quote, a man inhaling in order to let someone pass by in a narrow corridor, end quote. With this negative space between you and the opposite wall, now there's room for someone else to squeeze by, or in this case, for God to affect the creation of a finite world. Into this negative space, then, this simsum, God places the ten vessels, the sephirot, in a burst of divine action. These vessels are containers of the divine life. They are the emanations of God and the Ein Sof that make manifest both our finite world and the higher spiritual realm. They are also attributes of the divine, kind of personality traits, which are both separate but also linked to each other in various ways. The sephirot can be arranged visually for easier understanding, in which you have higher-level attributes at the top, like crown, wisdom, and understanding, and the lower-level attributes like victory, splendor, and foundation at the bottom. The chart of sephirot is also split down the middle with a male and female side. For the world to have balance, then, both the male and female sides must work together to achieve unity. The problem here is what happened to the sephirot, the ten vessels, at creation. Seven of them weren't strong enough to contain the power of the divine light and they shattered. Some of their light went upwards back to the contracted space, but the rest fell downwards into our realm. Each ragged piece of the sephirot contained a tiny spark of the divine light, now in exile. This state of exile is the foundation of evil, the state of opposition to the act of creation. Our world, then, is incomplete. It's divided. There's the lower realms where humanity dwells amongst the shattered pieces of light, and the higher realms of unity and balance that are now out of reach. The question, then, is whether and what humans can do anything about all this. And here, too, Isaac Luria supplied an elegant answer. Here's where Isaac Luria's ideas get amazing, and why they had lasting power. He brings the mystical ideas of redemption into the human world of everyday ethics, providing us with a roadmap for fixing that which has been shattered. The Kabbalah is presenting this utterly complex, esoteric, almost unbridgeable system of mystical doctrine that seems impossible to fully grasp, let alone discern what we're supposed to do with this information about the shattered sephirot and the sparks of evil and the exile of the divine light from the higher planes of existence. But Isaac Luria gives us a way. He said the answer lies with tikkun, which means repair, and tikkun olam, which means repair the world. It is up to us humans, and he meant specifically the Jews, to effect this tikkun olam, this repairing of the world, through our actions. Every time we do good, we rescue a tiny spark from its shattered piece and join it back with the divine light. Conversely, when we do bad, we perpetuate the evils of the world. We go about effecting this tikkun olam, this repairing of the world, through piety. Following God's commandments, adhering to Jewish law, performing the correct rituals, each of these acts rescues another piece of light. And if every Jew does this, if every Jew is engaged in tikkun olam, repairing the world, then together we will bring about the redemption of the world. The great catastrophe at the moment of creation will be reversed, and the universe will glow in the emanations of the divine light. 
This proved an enormously powerful concept, for it gave each and every person a role to play in redemption, both as an individual and as a collective. Isaac Luria made explicit the connection between the esoteric mysticism of Kabbalah and our everyday actions here on Earth. George Robinson writes that, quote, It is in the search for that balance that the human role in creation comes into play. The Sephirot have a purpose, and we are an integral part of that process. Our behavior in the lower world, our world, affects the upper worlds of the divinity. Only when the ideal balance of justice and mercy, of God's transcendent and immanent qualities, is achieved can there be peace and fulfillment. And that, the Kabbalists taught, can only be brought about through human actions, through self-mastery, through prayer and meditation and the fulfillment of the mitzvot. End quote. At a time when Jews were reeling from the trauma of the Spanish expulsion and looking for an explanation for their suffering, as well as a raised hope for the coming of the Messiah to relieve them of their misery, Luria's version of Kabbalah took them out of the realm of speculation and magic and into the idea of tikkun olam and its attendant doctrines as an actual force in history. As the great historian Chaim Hillel ben Sasson wrote, quote, The mystic doctrines emanating from Sfat gave cosmic and human significance to the exile and redemption. Isaac Luria gave Jewry a new myth for comprehending its existence, both in achievement and in tribulation. The Jewish predicament involves the whole significance of human history, and both are aspects of the mystery of creation. They reveal to the ordinary Jew not only the purpose of his distress and suffering, but also the lofty significance of every detail of the commandments. End quote. So although Kabbalah had been around for centuries, it had always been on the fringes of Jewish life. Lurianic Kabbalah slowly but surely pushed these ideas into the mainstream. Even today, indeed especially today, you will hear Jews loudly proclaiming their commitment to tikkun olam, the repair of the world. Few of them appreciate its origins with the young mystic wandering the ancient alleyways of the small city on the mountaintop in Israel. Isaac Luria's teachings were considered secretive information, fit only for the privileged elite, his students sworn to secrecy. But in the decades following his death in 1572, his ideas found their way to Jewish communities all over the world. Part of what made them so successful is that they weren't a replacement for what Jews were already doing. They were instead a kind of turbo boost. The historian Marvin Goodman writes that, quote, Luria and his followers were generally conservative in upholding traditional ritual, and indeed their tendency to read mystical significance into liturgy strengthened the hold of such practices amongst the wider Jewish population. The pervasive legacy of Lurianic Kabbalah was less a change in behavior than deeper appreciation amongst ordinary Jews of the significance of their existing religious practices. End quote. Isaac Luria tells us that we all have a role to play in the cosmic struggle between good and evil, in bringing redemption to the fallen sparks of light, and in building a relationship with the divine that will repair the broken parts of our world to bring unity across time and space. It's quite a mission. Next time, we're moving over to Amsterdam about a century later, in the 1600s, to a philosopher trained in Talmud and in Kabbalah, and who pretty much rejected them. 
Yes, there is a God, he said, but reason compels us towards tolerance and what we might call today democratic principles. Beyond that, we're not so special. He ushered in the modern era and found himself excommunicated from the Jewish community. That's Baruch Spinoza. Next episode, here at Season 6, 10 Jewish Philosophers You Oughta Know. As always, I'm at jewoughtoknow.com, and my email is jewoughtoknowpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lahitraot. See you later. <laughs>